You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Berman. My guest today is Abby Brockman. She's a Jewish board-certified clinical chaplain who specializes in trauma, grief and loss, and end-of-life work. She recently started her own private practice to provide spiritual care. Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, where I live right now. I've lived in a few other places throughout my life, but the most important to my journey in terms of chaplaincy is in Boston, where I lived for many years, and that's where I completed my Master's of Divinity. I did my first clinical chaplaincy training um, before moving back to Seattle to do my clinical chaplaincy residency, and I'm still here today. So in those formative years of your life, what did you envision to be doing with your life? You know, I didn't really have a clear sense of what I wanted to do, and I'm actually really glad about that. I think credit for not knowing what I wanted to do as a child really goes to my parents. I think a lot of parents have ideas about what they want their children to do. I think a lot of children experience a lot of pressure from their parents to be or do certain things. And thanks to my parents, I never had that. So I kind of got to have a childhood where I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was an adult and that that was okay. So I was really able to focus on exploring things that interested me, figuring out what felt good to me, where I felt needed, where I felt I could contribute without having to have pressure from my parents or having answers at too young of an age. So I think that was really a gift that my parents gave me that I got to not know what I wanted to do when I got older. That said, I was always really involved in community, in volunteering. I started volunteering in the nursing home where my grandmother lived when I was almost 10 years old. I volunteered at Seattle Children's Hospital in high school. I was at the nursing home. I mean, I would come back to the nursing home even after I went away to college. So my parents were always very focused on giving back and volunteering, but none of that translated into having a clear idea of what I wanted to do ultimately as a career. So at 10 years old, visiting in a nursing home, how did you navigate that environment and who modeled visitation for you? I would have to give two answers, one concrete, one a little bit nebulous. The concrete one would be my father, because my father is the one who often took me to visit his mother in the nursing home. And my grandmother lived in room 318. You'd walk into the nursing home, you turn to the right, you turn to the right, you turn to the left, and there would be her room. So I can still see it in my mind's eye, right? And as we would walk forward and right and right and then left, my father would stop and talk to everybody along the way. He would talk to all of the residents we were passing. He would notice if someone, you know, was trying to wheel themselves somewhere and he would offer to push them. He would offer to get people water. So the concrete answer is my father modeled visitation to me. And the nebulous answer I would give is a sense of spirit really modeled, if you if you can even say that, visitation to me. I, I've always felt an internal pull and magnetism towards people. My eyes have always noticed who looked thirsty, who looked sad, who had a tear in their eye. 
And that's always felt like it's kind of come from within and beyond me. So I think I both had the concrete modeling of my father and then something in my spirit that just moved me in that direction as well. So how did your journey to chaplaincy begin? I think it really began in the halls of that nursing home. Uh, you know, when, when I was 10 years old, it started with visiting with my father and mostly visiting my grandmother. And then as I got older, I started just going on the weekends myself and visiting with residents. And I would push them around. I would take them into the garden. I would get them either cranberry juice or cold water. You know, they would give me chocolate bars and talk to me about their story. And I would just kind of be enthralled with what it was like to just sit and listen to someone. So I think it began there. If if I were to fast forward, I volunteered at Seattle Children's Hospital in high school. Um, I actually quit Seattle Children's as a volunteer because I felt so connected to a patient. And they made me choose between visiting with this patient after hours and keeping my volunteership. And so my spirit moved in me and I said, I'm going to choose this patient. So I think that was like another point. I've, I've worked with muscular dystrophy community since I was 16 years old, volunteering in their summer camps and then volunteering in a summer camp that my sister started. So I think all of these are really formative points along the way. But I will say that I ultimately thought I wanted to be a doctor when I became an adult. And so I actually moved to Boston to do post-backs for med school. So the science requirements to get into medical school, I had not done in my undergraduate education. So I totally thought I wanted to be a doctor. I moved to Boston. I actually quit the program a year into it. And I'll tell you, Saul, the reason I quit was because I realized the way I said it then I didn't realize it was describing chaplaincy, but I realized mm. that I had no interest in getting to a point of diagnosis. So when you talk to doctors, right, they often talk about the puzzle, loving the puzzle of medicine, you know, the science behind medicine, all of these things that I realized I had no interest in. But what I said at the time was, once there is a diagnosis, Figuring out what that diagnosis means on multiple levels, mental, emotional, spiritual, personal, interpersonal, that's what I was interested in. But of course, I didn't even know about chaplaincy then, so I just became an admin assistant. Hmm. So I literally kept calendars, ordered catering, set up meetings for almost five or six years, and the chief of the department took a liking to me. And she got to start knowing me personally, you know, not just professionally, we would meet and, and talk. And she came up to my desk one day, Saul, and she said, Abby, we all love you here. You are doing a great job as an admin assistant. We're so lucky to have you in the department. And then she paused and she said, but we all know that you're not destined to be an admin assistant. And I want to help you get to where you want to go. So she said, can you schedule a meeting with my assistant? And I want to do a mentoring meeting with you. Wow. And that really was kind of the first part of my journey that directly kind of took me towards chaplaincy. So we scheduled a meeting for January 6th, many, many years ago. And I came into her office and she tried to figure out what was important to me. And I actually saw, I started talking about teaching because I love teaching and she interrupted me and she said, Abby, can I say something crazy? <laughs> and I said, sure, I love crazy. And she said, have you ever thought about being a rabbi? 
And I said, you know, it's funny you should mention that. I'm non-theistic. I'm agnostic, even atheist um, sometimes. So I don't think I could be a rabbi. But I said, Dr. Johnson, I heard the word chaplaincy a few months ago. I don't know anything about it, but it reminds me about being a rabbi. What do you think about chaplaincy? And we started having a conversation, and I learned two things in that conversation. One, to be a chaplain, there are a lot of people that aren't theistic that need spiritual care. So I said, great, maybe maybe I could be a chaplain. And then also that when you go into a room, even of someone who's theistic or someone of a different faith, it doesn't matter what my personal beliefs are as long as I can meet them where they're at. So all of that to say that was really the start of it. She then connected me with the team of chaplains at Boston's Children's Hospital. I met with them for two hours and I came back to my desk that day and I knew I had found my calling. It's quite an incredible journey. And um, uh, from childhood, it looks like you, you've always been attracted to the human document, probably to the pain that human beings experience. But also then encountering this mentor who sees something uh, in you that it looks like maybe you recognized it, but uh, never fully surrendered to it. That, that was really uh, powerful to, to have somebody in your life who can see that and walk you through that process. Yeah, and that's, to be honest with you, that's why I don't believe in the concept of self-made anything. You know, the, 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 the common term is self-made millionaire, right? But to be human is to live in community. To be human is to need support. To be human is to rely on each other. So I think Dr. Johnson was a really important part of my story because it was a reminder. Like we all need people throughout our lives to, to guide us, to give us support, to believe in us, to contribute to us. And without her, I, I don't know if I ever would have really pursued or considered chaplaincy. So no matter how much hard work we might do as individuals, None of us are islands. We all need other people in our story and in our journeys. So after you met with the chaplain, what steps did you take? Right. I really appreciate that question because I hear from a lot of chaplains, especially who will reach out to me on LinkedIn, wondering, like, what is the concrete path towards chaplaincy. If you just Google how to become a chaplain, it can be kind of complicated and confusing, and you can get a lot of different answers if you just go the Google route. So I really welcome and appreciate the question of the, the kind of technical path towards becoming a chaplain. For me, what that path entailed was applying to a Master's of Divinity program. There are other pathways now. Some people, there's kind of a question of whether or not you need a master's of divinity. I always encourage people to get a master's of divinity because a lot of workplaces will make that a baseline requirement for their chaplaincy jobs. So I applied to schools in Boston. I was living in Boston at the time and I really wanted to stay there. So I applied, I got accepted to the Boston University School of Theology. I did their three-year Masters of Divinity program, so that gave me my master's, which again is really important when you're trying to find a job. And then there are, and that's also one path. I did not get ordained, so I'm Jewish. I'm a Jewish clinical trauma chaplain, but I'm not an ordained rabbi, so I'm what's known more as a lay chaplain. So I get questions about that. So I got yeah. my Masters of Divinity. I did not have to become ordained. After that, you have to get 
a number of clinical units. The clinical units are called clinical pastoral educational units or CPE units. So what I did was during one of the summers of my master's program, I applied to do clinical pastoral education at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is a level one trauma center in Boston. And I was accepted and I did that full time. I was the chaplain on the trauma burn ICU unit full time for for three months. And that gave me one unit of CPE. I then moved to Seattle and I did what's called a clinical chaplaincy residency, which is a full-time one-year clinical program in a hospital. And I did that at the VA hospital here in Seattle. So I got my MDiv, I started my CPE units doing a summer intensive, and then I did a clinical chaplaincy residency for a year. And then ultimately I applied to be a staff chaplain and just started doing the work. Obviously you did the work, you did the academic work to keep you grounded to be able to do this very well. I I just want to kind of put a note in for listeners here that there's a question around credentialing. I think that there are a lot of certificate programs out there that are very quick and don't have a lot of supervision. And I, I would just invite people to think about what sort of training is necessary to do this really deep, dark work. If you're going to meet someone in their darkness, it's not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of inner work yourself. It takes a lot of learning and a lot of skill. And I think what we're seeing is a proliferation of certificates. There was an expose written just on grief certificates. And the author tried to get a grief certificate just by going through the online courses, but she was baking banana bread, she was cleaning her house, and she came through the certificate program certified to be a grief counselor. So I just want to, as we're talking about credentialing, I just want to encourage people to think really deeply, if you're both looking for support, to really think about what credentialing and experience the people you're talking to have. And if you're someone who wants to get into this work, to just think really deeply about what sort of training you really want to have to do it. The truth is this is difficult work and you have to be well prepared for it. Uh, mentally, academically, you need solid, solid grounding to be able to do this work because you're dealing with people's pain. And when people trust you to walk alongside them in this difficult moment, you better be prepared. So well said. I totally agree. You can really cause harm. Yes. So from childhood, you're walking through the corridors of a healthcare system in the nursing homes. And now you're doing your clinical pastoral education in a hospital. What was it like to practice in the hospital as a, a professional chaplain? I'll tell you about two of my very first patients on the trauma burn ICU center at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I think these short stories will, will answer that. I remember coming onto the unit my very first day. I stepped onto the trauma burn ICU. I had no idea what it was going to be like, even really what to do. I was wondering, should I just go door to door and knock on different patient rooms? Should I go introduce myself to the nurses? Should I go find the nurse manager of the unit? I didn't really know what I should do on that unit. But I walked onto the unit. I showed up. And I heard as I entered the unit, loud moaning and crying out of a patient. So immediately my ears perked up and I looked over and I saw a nurse coming out of the patient's room and she looked incredibly frazzled. 
So I followed the spirit inside and I did what I thought a chaplain should do. I walked up to the nurse and I introduced myself as the chaplain. And I said, you know, it sounds like something's really going on with the patient. And I asked if any spiritual support would be helpful. And the nurse looked at me, Saul, and her eyes got wide and her jaw could have fallen. And she said, do you hear that? I don't think you want to go into that room. It was like she couldn't believe that (laughs) that I wanted to help in that situation. And I looked back at her and I stayed really calm. And I said, I do hear that. And that's exactly where I think I need to be. And so she told me a little bit about this elderly patient who was dying. And I went into the room and I spent a few hours with the patient um, providing spiritual care and kind of being in the midst of that pain. And so I think of that story when you ask me, what was it like actually being on the units doing spiritual care? Um, it, It felt like a calling and it felt like I was able to be guided. I didn't show up with a sense of fear or imposter syndrome. It really felt like something I'd been training to do for a lot of my life. And so I think there was a sense of really wanting to just kind of get into the work. So that's one story. The other short story that happened that same week is I was sitting with another elderly woman who was dying and I was holding her hand saw. So if you can picture an elderly woman patient in a bed and me sitting in a chair next to her and me holding her hand and I'm talking with her, I'm being with her. And she's actively dying. um, And the door to her hospital room is open. So soon enough, a whole team of doctors, nurses come by to round. They round on patients every day. And they don't come into the room, but because the door is cracked open, I can hear them. And I can hear them talking about the medications and the vital signs and and all of the, the data and diagnostics. And as I'm sitting there, I had an epiphany. And I saw two parallel lives that I could have lived right next to each other because I was going to be the doctor, but instead I chose to be the chaplain. And in that moment, I realized, wow, if I'd been the doctor, I would have been outside of the room talking about medications. Hmm. But because I chose to be the chaplain, I'm the one in the room holding the patient's hand. And it was so validating of the path that I had chosen. So again, I share that story to say, what was it like to be a chaplain? It felt really validating of the choices I had made and of the skills and the gifts that I think I have to bring in and offer to the world. Well, that would take a little break. Again, our guest is Abby Brockman. She's the founder of Abby Brockman LLC, a private practice. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saleh Behman. We continue our conversation with Abby Brockman. Uh, Before the break, you were talking about uh, your period at the hospital and how those visits were so meaningful and not not, not only life-affirming, but also an affirmation to your calling. What did you learn about yourself? In my time at the hospital, you know, I started keeping a journal, Saul. I don't know if I've ever told anyone this. I started keeping a journal that I entitled Lessons Learned from Patients. And it became almost a spiritual practice of mine to come back from a visit 
and just dot, jot down a note or two, a sentence or two about what I had learned from that patient, from that patient's story, from that patient's words, from our visit together. And to me, it really became a spiritual practice of making sure that this idea of learning from each other, from our patients, wasn't just a theoretical idea, but was something like kind of really tangible that that I practiced. And so I have a whole journal of things that I've learned from my patients. I think a few of the ideas that stand out to me, there's a saying in Judaism. It says, Who is wise? He that learns from all people. And I think I just felt humbled over and over again when I would meet with patients. I think when you're a provider in a hospital, they're so hierarchical that it's easy to start to see yourself as the expert. If you're the doctor, you walk into the room as the expert. If you're the surgeon, you walk into the room as the expert. If you're the nurse, you walk into the room as the expert, social worker, physical therapist, chaplain. And I think when you really listen to spirit and when you really listen to story, you realize, wait a minute, I might be an expert in this modality. I might be an expert in this field. But in terms of this patient interaction, this patient is the expert in their story. This patient is the expert in what they're going through. And so really learning to be open beyond the normal kind of limited, narrow confines of what it means to be an expert and really listen deeply and be open to myself changing, right? I think, again, a lot of providers, when we walk in that room and we think we're the expert, we also subconsciously think that change and impact and transformation is unidirectional. The surgeon is going to come in and fix the patient. The doctor is going to come in and help the patient. The chaplain is going to come in and support the patient. But real change and real transformation goes both ways. And so I think I really learned to show up and realize that I had something to learn from everyone. And that if I ever wanted to help someone, support someone, help someone heal, help someone transform something in their life, I had to be just as open to that happening to me in the interaction because it really has to go both ways. So after about three and a half years in the hospital, you decided to leave all together and start your own private practice. Why? I worked at a children's hospital for many years. Some of those years were through COVID. And working in a hospital is hard, but I really want to distinguish between two kinds of hard, okay? Because a lot of people think there's only one kind of hard. So when they hear that you leave a hospital, they assume it's because of that one kind of heart. What am I talking about? The two kinds of heart is there's the heart of the work itself, sitting with patients, doing trauma work, supporting people in their darkest hour, right? That's the kind of heart that most people think that this work entails. So when they hear that I left a hospital, it's easy to assume that I left because the work itself was really hard. Here's what I believe. And here's what research supports. Humans can metabolize a lot of trauma. Humans can do really immensely hard work. So the second kind of hard is the institutional hard. The red line, the red tape, right? The administrative struggles, the logistical struggles. I remember reading a study on humanitarian aid and the author went to the Congo and talked to humanitarian aid workers in the Congo during a civil war. 
And what this researcher found out is they said, we actually, of course, this is traumatic hard work, but what makes their job really, really hard wasn't the trauma. It was that to get a hurt mother a blanket required getting like 10 signatures on 10 different pieces of paper, right? In other words, it's the institutional hard that's really often what causes people to leave their jobs and leave institutions. It's not just the hard stories and the hard work of trauma itself. It's really the hierarchy in healthcare. It's the institutional limitations. And I think for a lot of times, I really felt like my wings were cut working in such a hierarchy in such a hierarchy as healthcare is. And so it got to a point where, you know, the institutional requirements felt like it was really limiting the spiritual care that could be provided. So there's that aspect to it. The second aspect to it is I read the writing on the walls. You know, if you look at our field writ large, spiritual care, chaplaincy, there's not a lot of opportunities for growth. You can either be a chaplain or the manager of a spiritual care department. I didn't want to ever be a manager because I really want to be with patients. I really want to be with people. I don't want to get into hiring and firing and Excel spreadsheets and and policy and things like that. And so I said to myself, I love the patients I'm working with. Um, I love the work that I'm getting to do. But it doesn't feel like there's any opportunity to really do the visionary chaplaincy work that I want to do because of the institutional limitations. And it doesn't really feel like there's any opportunity for much growth or advancement while working with an institution. So I just realized that if I ever really wanted to feel like I had my wings back, that I could really grow and fly and do visionary chaplaincy work, I would have to take the step away from institutions and start a private practice where I could really define the scope um, of what I wanted to do as a chaplain. So in a blog piece you wrote when you left your work as a hospital chaplain, you said, I strove to practice a visionary mode of spiritual care that is about so much more than just listening. That is a heavy hitter there. <laughs> so what is your philosophy of care? Oh, big question, Sal, big question. So what I what I meant in that sentence and I'm so glad I get to explain it in the context of having shared some of my story. I started listening deeply to people when I was 10 years old in that nursing home, right? I started sitting and listening to people's stories when I was 10, 12, 14, 16, 18. So the check that I have on myself is if I'm doing the same thing as a clinical chaplain at 36 years old, that I could do at 15 years old, something's wrong, right? And so to me, the call of chaplaincy isn't just to listen. I think listening is a tool. I believe listening is inherently transformative. But I also think that our role as chaplains is not just to listen, but to use that listening to facilitate healing and transformation. And I've met a lot of good listeners that don't know how to do anything with that listening. They can listen deeply in a moment. They can make someone feel heard, but they don't know how, they don't have this, the experience, the skills, the tools, the expertise, the background in psychology to really help someone move from where they're at to where they can or want or need to be. So I think that as chaplains, we need better training beyond just 
you know, active listening or ministry of presence. And you'll see that in a lot of chaplain notes. It'll be like one or two lines provided. What's the intervention you provided? Ministry of presence. What was the impact? Making someone feel seen or heard. What I really want to encourage our field to do is think more deeply. You, you know, it doesn't begin and end with listening. It's like, what are we listening for? What? Why are we listening to someone? And I think a lot of our education and chaplaincy hasn't yet taken it beyond just teaching people how to listen and relying on listening to be inherently transformative itself. What are the power dynamics you've noticed in your practice? I've noticed a lot of power dynamics in my practice. The one that most comes to mind is how in a lot of spiritual care departments, the people making the calls about what chaplains can do and not do, the scope and role of chaplains, the goals of the spiritual care department are not chaplains. Not only are they not chaplains, they're administrators that don't understand what chaplaincy even is. And so you get this power dynamic in a lot of spiritual care departments where the chaplains understand what they do and what they truly are capable of, but they have no power to identify the role and scope of their practice, the goals of their department, and how they want to practice. Instead, you have directors or administrators or managers who aren't chaplains themselves, who don't understand chaplaincy, and often who aren't even real advocates of chaplaincy. You know, they'll be managing many, many teams. And so they're the ones who tell chaplains what they can and can't do, you know, how they should show up in their practice. And so you get this um, tension between chaplains who deeply understand the work but have no power and people who have power but don't understand the work. With that, we'll take a little break. Again, my guest is Abby Brockman. She's the founder of Abby Brockman LLC, a private practice. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Abby Brockman. Uh, so you left, uh, you, you started your own private practice. What does that look like now? I'm still figuring it out, is the short answer. I would say that to anyone who's thinking in spiritual care about a private practice, what I would say about what it looks like is it's somewhat like a private practice that therapists have. In therapy, it's very common to work in institutions or to start a private practice. In chaplaincy, it's incredibly rare to have a private practice for spiritual care. As we know as chaplains, chaplains work in the same few fields. They work in prisons, they work in the military, they work at universities, and they work at hospitals. Now that's being expanded in many ways. Chaplains are showing up in businesses and airports and you know all sorts of other places. But as much as we're expanding to other institutions, you don't really see a widespread shift towards private practice. So I've really felt like I've both had the example and template and role model of therapy private practices to learn from, 
while also having to reimagine it a little bit in the context of spiritual care, especially because I offer spiritual care for end of life and, and hospice and palliative care, which necessitates some different, just different things than, than a regular therapy private practice. So I'm still figuring it out, but I do have models that I'm learning from. So your work is informed by anti-oppressive ethic. Can you explain more on that? To answer on, on one foot is to say one is to recognize that I'm white, I'm Jewish, um, and how, and to think deeply about how that might impact the therapeutic and the spiritual care space, how that would impact the dynamic, how that would inform my approach, my capacities, my role, my scope. So to really think deeply about that, it also means to really think about systems when doing this work. A lot of therapists, a lot of chaplains really ignore the role of systems when they're providing care. But if you understand power and oppression and marginalization and systems, you understand that if people are struggling, it's not just due to a lack of resilience. It's not just due to a lack of motivation, a lack of hard work, a lack of grit. Um, Dr. Jane Jade Singleton calls it the grit grift, where when someone is struggling, we think that the problem is them and that the answer is that they just need more motivation. They just need better productivity. They just need better time management. They just need better resilience. But when we only look and diagnose the individual, we completely ignore the systems at play and we allow them to remain invisible and unaccountable. And that perpetuates the toxic exploitive systems that we all live within. So I think an oppression ethic is also really taking a systemic view to wellness and healing. One of your favorite spiritual ideas is that there are gateways to holiness. Could you expound on that? What this idea means and what it means to me is I think that a lot of people grow up conflating religion and spirituality. That's number one. And the messages that we often get from religion is that there is a right way to access the divine and the sacred, that there is a right time to access the divine and the sacred, that there is a right place to access the divine and the sacred. And that looks like having to show up to synagogue on Saturday morning to connect with God, or you have to show up to church on Sunday and you have to say these words or, you know, do these specific rituals, you know, on Sunday morning at church or Friday night or Friday afternoon. And so I think a lot of people end up getting a very narrow view of what it means to access spirituality. They think they have to do it by the book only in these ways, in these times, in these places. But the idea of there being gateways to holiness everywhere means that you can really access the spiritual and the divine and the sacred from wherever you are. So that could mean walking down the street and having a conversation with someone that deeply touches both of you. It could be going on a hike and seeing a landscape that feels spiritual or that makes you feel connected to the world beyond you. It can be having conversations. It can be dancing. It could be reading a book. It can be so many different things that aren't necessarily religiously approved. And so to me, what it means to live a spiritual life is to really connect with something greater than myself um, as often as I can. Instead of it being a rare thing that I only do on the weekends, it really is a way of life. Abby, what are your final thoughts? 
those might be my final thoughts. The only thing I would add is deep, deep gratitude for making this happen. Thank you for all of the episodes, all the work you guys are doing to help people understand this field, um, to help make this field more accessible and to help support the work of chaplains. I'm one of many, many people benefiting from the work you guys are all doing. So I'm just really grateful. That was Abby Brockman. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.